Welcome back to Street Talk Unplugged. Today we're going to be having a conversation with Letizia Parkalabescu from the AI Coffee Break YouTube channel. But just before that, um, I wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping and briefly discuss the symbolism debate which is raging on Twitter right now. Professor Gary Marcus recently released uh, an article called Deep Learning is Hitting a Wall. Um, I think it was a very well-written and well-researched article. Um, actually, by the way, uh, I don't know whether you guys have checked our merch store, but we do have a very special limited edition mug uh, paying homage to Gary Marcus. <clears throat> I think it's a little bit inappropriate, so we'll actually remove it within a week or so. But if you're quick, you can, you can still order some. But uh, yeah, coming, coming back to what we were saying, it does actually have some quite provocative um, statements in there, such as few fields have been more filled with hype than artificial intelligence. I mean, he gives plenty of examples of what he perceives to be the failures of deep learning. For example, GPT-3 suggesting that people should commit suicide or that Bill Gates invented COVID-19. He cites Bender et al's Stochastic Parrots paper, which argued that deep learning powered language models are a bit like stochastic parrots. They repeat a lot and understand little. Now, a big part of the disagreement here, I think, is that um, we should really be developing intelligent models, but there's no consensus whatsoever on what is meant by intelligence. We just recorded a show with uh, Dr. Pei Wang, and we'll be releasing that very soon, but you know, we were discussing the definitional challenges of intelligence. He thinks that it should mean adaptation with insufficient knowledge and resources, which I think is, is fascinating. Now, Pei thinks that many researchers would rather pursue whatever objective is fruitful, uh, either in theory or in practice, today, no matter whether it's labelled AI or not. And many of the definitions of artificial intelligence are just disliked by researchers, not because they're wrong, but because they're not useful. Now, this conception of intelligence point actually seems to be the biggest issue, in my opinion. This is the reason why our friend Francois Cholet thinks that deep learning won't work, because in his conception, an intelligent system must produce a new skill program, which is as small as possible, yet generalizes to many new situations and experience space. And he says that we need to explicitly account for priors and experience. Otherwise, he says, we would only achieve the parlor trick of intelligence because we'd be taking shortcuts. Now, Marcus says that insiders have long known that the biggest problem in artificial intelligence research is the tests or the benchmarks that we use to evaluate the systems. Who would have thought it that optimizing and evaluating models on benchmarks reflective of task-specific skill don't actually lead to actually intelligent models? Unfortunately, the idea that we should associate intelligence with the trivial mapping between the inputs and the behavioral outputs of an agent, ignoring the inner state, like in the Turing test, or the crystallized subset of capabilities of a model, rather than how those capabilities manifested, are still pervasive. Now, Gary is basically arguing that we need to have a much deeper and more nuanced understanding of human cognition. Now, um, some people have said that there's something inherently toxic about this discussion, or that he's being subversive or overly provocative, or in the worst case, that he's been operating in bad faith somehow. I honestly don't think that's the case. I mean, just read the article, right? It's extremely well-written and well-researched. I do think he's a bit of a troll to say that deep learning is hitting a brick wall, right? Um, that's ridiculous. 
There are some fundamental limitations to deep learning, depending on how you frame intelligence into the discussion, as I just mentioned. But that doesn't mean that it isn't an incredibly groundbreaking technology, right? We can bash deep learning all day long, but it certainly has not hit a wall. And it's delivering mind-blowing results every single day. I mean, just look at the neural radiance fields for view synthesis paper, for example. It's unreal. Some folks have bemoaned that Gary hasn't suggested any better symbolic alternatives other than the NetHack challenge near the end of last year. NetHack is an ASCII-2-rendered single-player dungeon crawl game that is perhaps the oldest and most difficult computer game in history. It's procedurally generated, with hundreds of different entities and complex environment dynamics, presenting an extremely challenging environment for both current state-of-the-art reinforcement learning agents and humans. Now, the task was overwhelmingly won by a symbolic approach. Gary said that he suspected that the answer begins with the fact that the dungeon is generated afresh every single game, which means you can't simply memorize or approximate the game board. To win, you need a reasonably deep understanding of the entities in the game and their abstract relationships to one another. Ultimately, players need to reason about what they can and cannot do in the complex world. But anyway, other than that, Gary didn't really offer many examples of symbolic dominance, other than his usual trick, which is to suggest that hybrid models like AlphaZero are in fact symbolic, uh, but nobody likes to mention it. I'll discuss definitionals in a minute, but I actually don't think of AlphaZero as being a symbolic model or even a hybrid model. Uh, I mean, we could argue about semantics on that, but the apparent lack of symbolic methods around today I think this is a bit of a lack of imagination. And the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So let's not forget that connectionism was shunned at one point, but it quickly became a darling once again, the moment it found a useful domain of application, you know, which was catalyzed by key benchmarks and challenges around 2012. Gary's key claim centers around critical capabilities, which is to say symbolic manipulation, which he sees as fundamentally missing from deep learning today. Which is to say, he thinks we're building taller towers with the aim of getting closer to the moon. And of course, this depends on your definition of a tower, and indeed, the moon, in this respect. There are active and vibrant lines of research pursuing the unification of the symbolic and the connectionist approaches. For example, look at the neurosymbolic cognitive approach of Professor Lewis Lamb, who we interviewed on the show recently. Now, when I was reading around the various Twitter threads, the thing that really jumped out at me was the apparent lack of any common understanding of what symbolic meant. I mean, the most naive conceptions of what it means to be symbolic are that there are variables or discrete structures in your system. Pedro Domingos made this very interesting post on Twitter. Quote, XGBoost is a symbolic learner and works better than deep learning for most problems. I originally thought he was making the somewhat naive statement that XGBoost had discrete variables in it. So did neural networks, I thought. Um, but after discussing it with Keith, it quickly became apparent that he meant the holistic manipulation of learners as symbols, or nodes in the trees, inside the algorithm rather than the mere discrete representation. Gary said in his article that simply having symbols and processing them algebraically are two different things. It's the processing part which allows us to robustly deal with abstractions in novel situations. Now let's have a look at Gary's recent Next Decade article. 
Symbolic operations over variables offer one potential answer, a solution that is used trillions and trillions of times every second of every day, underlying virtually all of the world's software. In particular, four basic ideas undergird virtually every compute program. Variables, instances, bindings that tie variables to instances, and operations over variables. Each of these ideas is familiar from grade school algebra, in which entities like X and Y are variables. Specific numbers, 2, 3.5, etc., are instances, and those variables might be bound. For example, X might currently equal 3. Operations include things like addition and multiplication. These make it possible to represent relationships, such as Y equals X plus 2, that automatically extend to all values in some class, for example, all numbers. The process of connecting a variable to an instance is sometimes referred to as variable binding. So what is he actually saying here? Well, first of all, that we can defer attaching values to variables or symbols. The implication here, of course, is that all of the variables can be manipulated abstractly, algebraically building and rearranging formulas regardless of any particular value assignment or binding. Now, he makes a big deal out of saying that all of the values inside some class can be represented, which is the extrapolation out of the training range point that he makes so frequently. I think the most important thing which Gary wanted to convey, which he didn't write down explicitly, well, I mean, I think he did later on actually, but um, it's this notion of abstract symbolic manipulation rather than the mere representation. Let's look at the summary section of Gary's Next Decade article, which he released recently. He said that symbolic manipulation, particularly the machinery of operations over variables, offers a natural, though incomplete, solution to the challenge of extrapolating beyond a training regime. Represent an algorithm in terms of operations over variables, and it will inherently be defined to extend to all instances of some class. It also provides a clear basis for representing structured representations such as tree structures. So, the summary section of Gary's article is instructive. It makes it clear that he thinks extrapolating outside of the training regime, performing operations over variables, and having discrete structured representations are the most important features of a symbolic model. Now, people think that Gary eschews deep learning, but this couldn't be further from the truth. He thinks that deep learning holds the key to being able to learn knowledge rather than having to explicitly capture it by hand. I'm quoting, Hybrids could be a way of combining the best of both worlds, the capacity to learn from large-scale datasets, as exemplified by deep learning, with the capacity to represent abstractions, which are syntactic and semantic currency of all of the world's computer programming languages. Now, when I spoke with Keith earlier, we thought that there might be four possible conceptions of what symbolic models actually are. The first conception is that of a capability, right, which is to say extrapolating outside of the training range. This is possibly what Gary Marcus seems to be placing the most weight on when we've spoken with him. The most simple definition is this idea of discrete versus continuous, which is to say that your model isn't differentiable, basically. Um, and the third definition would be variable bindings, which is to say being able to assign values to variables. Uh, the fourth definition, which I'm now tending towards, 
is this notion of symbolic manipulation, or Gary calls it algebraic manipulation. And I think basically what this means is reasoning in the abstract domain, not on the values themselves, but on symbols representing their values. Now, humans are quite interesting, right? Because we perform symbolic manipulation, but we perceive this as happening on the values instead of the symbols. Now, Melanie Mitchell put a very interesting tweet out the other day. She linked a paper from 1982. It was from Alan Newell talking about the intellectual issues in the history of artificial intelligence. Newell focused on some important splits which arose in the first 30 years of research on artificial intelligence. Things like symbols versus numbers and continuous systems. By the way, continuous systems, pattern recognition, um, learning, neural networks, etc. These were all the domains of other fields, right? For example, cybernetics, not artificial intelligence. Melanie was fascinated how the term artificial intelligence now mostly means this latter set of terms. It's gone completely 180 degrees. Melanie spoke about our notions of what intelligence actually is keeps changing over time. Are symbols necessary for intelligence? Do symbols in artificial intelligence need to emerge from non-symbolic substrates in order to be grounded and in order to avoid brittleness? Is it more useful to focus on symbolic behaviour like Andrew Lampinen from DeepMind outlines in his latest paper, Symbolic Behaviour in Artificial Intelligence, where he and his co-authors argued that symbol use will emerge when learning agents immerse in human social-cultural interactions, demanding coordination around perspectives and meaning. Lampinen invokes Wittgenstein, which is to say that we ought to understand language by examining how words are used. He also thinks that symbolic meaning can and should be invented and continuously adapted. So instead of thinking about whether a system engages with symbols, we should focus instead on characterizing how it engages with symbols. This is in stark contrast to our friend Walid Sabah, who's a big believer that we discover all of these things, we don't um, invent them. We had a fascinating discussion with Professor J. Mark Bishop about this as well. Of course, he's also an ultra-relativist and, and um, fan of, of Wittgenstein. Now, um, Andrew is coming on the podcast in a few weeks' time, so we'll do a deep dive with him then. Now, the deep learning godfather, Professor Jan LeCun, responded to Professor Melanie Mitchell. He said that he never called what he was working on artificial intelligence. AI was supposed to designate symbolic methods. Then, around 2013, the public and the media became interested in deep learning, and they called it artificial intelligence. But he couldn't explain why artificial intelligence people didn't view deep learning as AI all along. He said it made no sense to him, which is very, very interesting. Anyway, now I give you Letizia Parkalabescu. Enjoy. Although, um, Dugo, why are you, you're still using your webcam? Yes. I just got him to buy a DSLR last year and he's only used it as far as I can tell once. Good luck installing that. It's a... Uh... No, it, you just plug it in, it's USB-C. He just hasn't plugged it in. No, no, man. It's it's right there. It's just I got to arrange my desk differently because right now my screen is here. It's just a space thing. Space it's thing. a space thing. Dugger, quality. It's all about the production quality. I don't want to be in high res like that. Who wants to look at me in high resolution? In fact, I was going to put a blur filter on me. Okay. All right. I don't know. I really like the visual aspect of your podcast, really. And I'm so happy you decided to release the YouTube stuff again. But you release so much lately that I 
cannot catch up. So that's also <laughs> you'll have you'll have time to catch up. We're gonna have a little lull for a bit, I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think we've gone a little bit crazy. I mean, today this is the third one we've done. Wow. <laughs> Do you not have anything else to do? Like, uh, I, I do, <laughs> I do. And I've been trying to convince Tim of that to like, kind of not burn us out, but, um, he wanted to conduct a quote experiment. So hopefully, mm -hmm. I don't know how this came about. I mean, we, we said that we'd do some unplugged conversations and because we weren't going to prepare for them, we could just rinse it. So we just blocked out some time in our calendar and we just thought, you know, set up a calendarly away we go. And then the calendar filled up very quickly. And then we suddenly yep. realized that it's against our religion not to prepare. So we just suddenly mm. had about six times more work to do than we did before. But it's good. It's, yep. I, I really oh. love it. It's stimulating. I think the, the I love acceptance it, yeah. rate and the rate at which the calendar filled up, because initially we didn't have it to where only one person per day could sign up. And I think we just weren't expecting so many people to grab time on the calendar. And then like Tim said, uh, how... Uh, we can't not prepare at least to some degree. And so, um, got ourselves in a painted in a bit of a corner for a little while. It is Yeah. Good. But I think it will, it will pass. I, I just, I, it's a good time to be alive. I just can't believe you can set up a YouTube channel. And, uh, I mean, we, we've just got some amazing people booked. I just, I can't believe it. And I mean, you already had the, I mean, two of the three biggest guys. And I was thinking like, where would you go now? Like, yeah, well, you'll find out. I mean, there's not much room to improve. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. So anyway, enough about us, Letizia. Um, why don't you introduce yourself properly? Oh, hi, <laughs> I'm Letizia. I am a PhD student in my third year at Heidelberg University at the Department of Computational Linguistics, but do not get fooled by computational linguistics because I do both uh, vision and language. So I like to integrate these two modalities, images with text. And uh, yeah, that was what I do during my daytime, because now at night, like you can see, I <laughs> hang out on YouTube. <laughs> I have a YouTube channel, it's called AI Coffee Break, and uh, AI Coffee Break, that was my Romanian accent just pulling through. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I have there a certain Miss Coffee Bean, who now sleeps in that coffee roaster over there, and she helps me explain latest machine learning papers or concepts on YouTube, and I think... It's a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I really recommend folks, you, you go and subscribe to Letizia's YouTube channel and um, the, the, the quality of your content has come along so far as well. I'm really envious of how you produce your videos and how you do the animations and the amount of preparation that you must put into the videos is, is just unreal. And, and you said that you, you're, you're into computational linguistics. I'm surprised that Yannick ever spoke with you because he says to us that he doesn't like talking with linguists because they <laughs> are too... Uh, they, they bring up si uh, symbols too quickly in the conversation. Uh, yeah, that's not me. I don't have actually any linguistics training. I was, you know, I studied physics and during my physics studies, I like to explore a lot and I explored computer science too. And, uh, yeah, if I had perhaps maybe if I'd known about uh, programming and computer science during school already, I would have done that. I'm not sure, but I, I don't regret having studied physics at all. I did my master's in physics too, uh, but also in parallel, I studied computer science and for my bachelor's thesis and for my master's thesis, I actually did machine learning and for, for my PhD, 
I wanted to do, so I found a professor who wanted to do both text and vision with me. So, and that was uh, a professor at the Department of Computational Linguistics. And all the linguistics I know, I, I mean, <laughs> what do I even know? I learned from her and I learned it just by doing it. Uh, I don't count myself as a linguist. I even sometimes ask myself, where I, am I at home? Because I feel comfortable in many places, but where is my home? Yeah, but I don't think I have to decide, right? You know, I, I think you and I have a lot in common there because... Um, when I was going away to, to college, you know, a long, long time ago, uh, I had a hard time deciding what I wanted to study because I liked everything. You know, I liked engineering. I yeah. liked math. I liked science, chemistry, all of it, right? I, I enjoyed all of it. So here's what I did. I just, I looked through the catalog of the highest paid starting salaries for someone with a bachelor's degree. <laughs> and at that time, again, a long time ago, let's say uh, early 90s, um, the top two were uh, electrical engineering and chemical engineering. Chemical engineering, I think, was second. And I, I liked chemicals a lot. You know, I fooled around with them a lot as a kid. So I chose that, right? And then subsequently, I started taking programming courses in college. And, and over the years, you know, I shifted and gravitated more and more towards applied math and in particular computational, computational techniques. And so sometimes I have the same thought, like, do I regret, you know, not having just jumped straight into computer mm -hmm. science from the beginning? But I have to say, I really do enjoy the fact that I learned so much about the actual universe and, you know, chemistry and physics and, and engineering. And I think at my core, I really think of myself as an, as an engineer. I just, I love solving problems and I love learning because that helps me solve problems. Um, so I don't regret it, but I do wonder what would have happened if, if I had just gone straight into computer science, you know? Yeah, I can relate to that because I studied physics in Heidelberg because I was looking at what the program has to offer. And I saw I could do also some philosophy courses. <laughs> and I didn't want to study a program <laughs> which was like, you have to do that and that and that, but uh, something with more freedom. And I had the philosophy course. I was so disappointed by it that I said never again. And then I went into exploring other things like math and computer science. Yeah. But uh, regarding computational linguistics, I sometimes at the department, I am a little bit the outsider, the person that doesn't know linguistics. I think that's the reason why Yannick uh, talked to me. <laughs> so, uh, and I sometimes feel, I, I feel like I'm a little bit, let's say not criticized, but looked upon like, ah, she, she didn't uh, use the right term for that thing that she tried to circumscribe because she didn't have the proper training. Um, and, uh, but sometimes I feel like actually it's really good to bring what I'm bringing into, uh, into the department, like my knowledge about physics and math, it's, it's actually super useful because that helps me with what is computational linguistics today, which is uh, neural networks. And, uh, I mean, computational linguistics was about linguistics 20, 30 years ago, but now the mm. field has shifted. And I think the linguists like, uh, you know, I had a fear that shifted from under their feet and went more into my direction where I'm comfortable with neural networks. And the papers contain so much math that usually linguists have, so or my colleagues have problems understanding them. And um, yeah, it's like a symbiosis. It's uh, I explain the mathy parts and they explain to me the high level, um, why does this make sense linguistically parts? And then together we have understood the paper. And I think that's great. 
Yeah, it's interesting. We we spoke with Guy Emerson a few weeks ago, and he's a linguist, and um, you know they're they're interested in um, things like um, phrase structure, grammars, and and it's it seems quite alien to the average deep learning person who's interested in um, you know a much more statistically uh, inspired conception of language. But we were actually having this debate yesterday, Keith, weren't we, about uh, where computational linguistics came from? And apparently, it was invented in the 1950s, not by any particular person, but it was. You know, in in the early symbolic days of AI, it was about you know making I don't know basic efforts towards things like translation, and and as you say now, linguistics isn't really associated with the symbolic notion of of AI. There was a great thread by Melanie Mitchell last night where apparently, um, you know, these days we have this notion of of deep learning and pattern recognition, and a lot of the symbolic folks say that that's got nothing to do with AI. So I just wondered what what's your perception, Letizia, and do do you, do you think that modern uh, computational linguistics is AI? Well, <laughs> that's a question because I've fol- I've been following your podcast and you always have this debate about symbolic and the, uh, you know, just uh, connectionist approaches and, and... We want to drag you right into that, that debate, Letizia. Yeah, exactly. But I don't know if I have an opinion or like a stance or if I have one hill on which I'm willing to die on. I think that both both hills have a point, and I feel this uh, two different hills with my professor, who's a linguist, all the time. Because I actually like deep learning models, and I like to see them succeed, but I also like to see them fail. And I think uh, so. One of my most recent papers is about setting them up to fail, in a sense, uh, with test vision and language models on whether they have understood. Thing understood, yeah. Things like uh, are they able to count stuff in an image, and are they able to to see what's a coreference, or are they able to distinguish actions, or who's the actant? Like if if I change a sentence from the baby shout uh, the the woman shouts at the baby, or the baby shouts at the woman, if that if that you know is noticed or not, given that there is a picture depicting that certain action. Yeah, and so it's. Uh, I love to see neural networks fail <laughs> too, um, and uh, you know, there's this this question of whether is it that more data and bigger models can get you to AI, and I don't think it couldn't take you. I really think that's a shot we should take. I mean, that's one way to go uh, to take up the AI flag and and plant it onto that hill because. Uh, we have seen that, I mean, you can, you could start from a blank slate. That's again a, a notion that Tim says all the time, like blank slate and throw data and throw um, model capacity at it. And uh, with a lot of, uh, a lot of training time and instances, you could figure out that um, signal that is in the data. The problem is sometimes that the signal is so less often represented in the data that you that you think it's noise or the neural network thinks it's noise and actually it's interesting signal and to to push it further to to grab that signal which it thinks it no it's noise you could try with inductive biases and so on and push it a little further but but it's like could you could you just throw so much infinitely many things of uh, in amount of capacity and yes you could eventually maybe uh, get to mimic what evolution has done. I think that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is to take the things that we already know and to take the theories uh, that we already know. To, to uh, I mean, we already have figured out that there's some structure in, in this world 
and and take that and inject it as is and try to operate on that and try to to also uh, so we we have no problems writing down a symbolic program to compute something and maybe let's teach AI to to do that too but it's it's like two different paradigms and I don't know which one is the winning card so let's play both and I don't think there's a reason to argue I mean of course it's interesting intellectually and it makes for great Twitter threads and Twitter fights that I like to follow to see like what's best and people always go with the ticket they have already written a grant about but you know I, I am accepting of both and I I find both uh, sides fascinating and both people representing them fascinating. Yeah. And I think, you know, let's say the, the reason or the value and arguing about them is, um, more about how society allocates its, its resources. And there is this phenomenon mm -hmm. of, of the pendulum that swings, right? I mean, and we've talked to the people who lived through this, where back in the day, the folks, the connectionists were, you know, shunned and told to go sit in the corner and, you know, were told that they were working on nonsense. And, and then of course, yeah. uh, there became enough computational power and stagnation and symbolics that, that they, uh, started to be successful. And then the pendulum swings the other way where it's like, no, everything is. And I think that's in human nature to kind of swing one way or the other. And that's kind of a problem. Like that's not really the optimal way to proceed. You know, we have to keep kind of, as you're advocating for, all avenues open. We need to people to be kind of in this engaged in this open-ended search as Tim would, you know, kind of call it, um, to look around for stepping stones, to have more serendipity. And, um, I think some of us perceive that when there's too much dogmatism and when things have gone too extreme in one direction or the other, you have to push back against it to try and get at least a few people out there, a few more people, let me say out there to open up their minds a bit and explore some uh, less well-explored areas. Yeah, but I think that's less of a scientific question, like, uh, are we going now that way or that way? It's more of a societal question because uh, scientists form a society too, and they have the same power dynamics and the same, uh, the rich get richer right. um, kinds of um, situations. and. Yes, it's uh, it's exactly. Uh, there is, it's not a question. How can we get that voice that advocates for I know some research direction, but how can we get to highlight any voice? And, and this is also related to uh, reviewing uh, to, to the reviewing mm -hmm. system. That is also one mechanism that pushes down on some of the interesting avenues and pushes these. Uh, Yannick calls them the papers you cannot. You cannot reject. And I've encountered them as a reviewer because it's a paper that is like, yeah, well, I mean, it had all the points uh, uh, right and it's not too novel, but not too, uh, you know, copying something. It's just you, you cannot reject it and you accept it. And it's like it's this loop you cannot get out from. And, and people who have already some voice, they will have followers and voice. And it's hard to to get you know, attention to, to some other directions. Okay. But, and, and that's, I think what, you know, this channel sure. does sometimes and can do a lot. Yeah. But taking that into account, it seems that for your own personal research, you've chosen a little bit of the path less taken, right. Uh, to try and marry up these two very different paradigms. And I'm curious, 
I'm curious. You think it's not taken. Well, <laughs> but from where I am sitting, it looks like a very well taken path. And uh, I mean, it wasn't taken when I started it, mm. but uh, and I've been at it for three years now. But now, multimodality and vision and language, especially, it becomes very it became very sexy, and people try to do it. And there's been these huge models now from Google, from Facebook, and and. Uh, at the beginning, I didn't have a model to work with. Like I, I was still thinking about producing this model that would solve everything, right? But then there was the first huge model from I don't know which Wilbert, and that was people also related to Facebook, I think. Um, and and then there was another one, and it's another one, and there, now there's like twenty four such models, and I'm like. How to compare them even? Because, uh, you know, for, you strive for novelty because you want to write this paper that nobody can reject. And uh, you take this thing, which is, was basically done already, and then you put another uh, head, another data set, another training task. So you kind of switch it up a little. You are not comparable anymore because if you change the data, how should you even compare? And you have these 24 eclectic things that uh, everybody is interested in and everybody tries to push their own thing out. And I think, so where I stand from, yes, it's it's not, perhaps not so talked about it as other topics, maybe. Well, what, because, I, what I really meant, but still, yeah, yeah, what I really meant and what I wanted mm -hmm. to ask you about was when you decided to take that path, it was the path mm -hmm. less taken. Now, nowadays, there's more interest in it. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. what drove you personally to to be so interested in multimodality and, you know, data fusion and fusion, fusing the paradigms? I think I had experience in computer vision. <laughs> it's not really that that was my absolute and ultimate passion. And uh, I thought that text would be this absolute, I mean, more on the linguistic side. I, I wanted to to work with um, text that I always loved. I, I loved to read during uh, my, during high school times, especially when I had a lot of time to do that. And uh, and to marry those things was like, uh, let's bring some knowledge I already have and uh, try to get something new to it too, which was a textual part. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not more well thought than that. I think sometimes, I mean, you, you say, ah, there's a bigger picture, like, ah, this, that's an unresearched path, path. I want to go to, into that. It's, uh, it's more like... <laughs> a greedy optimization procedure I had applied there. It it was luck too that I found somebody who does that and, and all of that to fit to the environment I wanted to stay in, which was Heidelberg. And that's how it happened. And I think uh, it's most important what you do out of it and uh, less mm -hmm. like how it happens to come along. I'm quite interested in multimodality. It was it was actually speaking with Jeff Hawkins that sold me on the idea. So, you know, he, he's got this notion that we have all of these sensory motor circuits in our brain and they're all connected to different parts of our body. So when we pick up an almond, we can actually detect the complete object just by touch. And mm -hmm. in that notion, um, because we have so many different diverse signals, we can recognize objects very robustly. Uh, especially in lots of mm. partial information domains, because the thing I'm, you know, I'm always trying to square the circle of why does deep learning work at all? And, um, as you were just saying before, it's, you know, what does it mean to understand, right? I, I don't know whether you were talking mm. about a visual question answering model or some kind of scene recognition model, but you know, the baby shouts at the woman. Um, and the problem is that there's a lot of missing information 
and we need to reason to fill in the gaps and deep learning doesn't do that but maybe multimodality is a way of overcoming that problem yeah and this is exactly the pitch you could use for grants because and that's what you write in your introductions about multimodality and that's perfect but then and that's what i hoped to achieve when i started but then what i actually saw is the unrobustness of deep learning models because you have so let's stay simple. We have two modalities. It could be more. I mean, it, ideally, it should be as many as possible because then you are super robust, right? Um, but you have vision and language and, and there, are, there are tasks you want to solve, like visual question answering. And the, you have the question, yeah? So how many dogs are there in the image? And then the model has to count. But then you don't notice this as a programmer, you have, uh, or as a data set collector, you have a bias in your data set. And when you ask how many, then it's two, because if you ask how many, it's usually already more than one. It's uh, two because it could be three, two, but the probability is less, but it's not four usually. It's not five or six, because especially these data sets were conduct, uh, constructed such that models could handle them. And if you count m many ob objects, you have the problem of occlusion and and things starting to merge with each other. So usually you stay at low numerals and therefore this model that is uh, multimodal looks at both vision and language actually just looks at the tokens, at the n-grams, like how many, and then answers two. <laughs> and and uh, so you would expect that uh, these, this additional information brings in more information, but it doesn't. But, but let's suppose this is a simple task and a simple task and and it's it's obvious and there's data set biases but then you have the problem uh, of um, so let's suppose you you want to do emotion classification and you have text and in text you sometimes do not understand irony or sarcasm because you don't know the person and you don't know that if they use that word combination it's sarcasm so it would be awesome if you would have the speech modality too so the auditory uh, the audio signal to have this voice that will tell you immediately look it's it's uh, sarcasm but the problem there is again you have combined um in a sense not so varied modality which is text uh, with a very varied modality which is speech because in speech you can have um, I mean, different voices, and then you have different personalities, and everybody expresses their sarcasm in a different way. And in in text, it's it's just tokens. And yes, for every token, it could be uh, thirty thousand possibilities, or how large the English vocabulary is, like like fifty k big. But also the probability to assign as to uh, to have some tokens next to each other is is kind of zero. So you don't say he is tired. You say you say he um. Oh, you say he's tired. <laughs> I wanted to make a tangramatical. He, he are tired. You don't say that. You say he is tired. So he and are is a combination, an engram that is absolutely unlikely. So from this 30,000 possibilities, you have actually reduced a lot of them. But uh, And that's on the textual side, which has less possibilities. But on the, on the uh, audio signal side, you have actually a lot of possibilities. And again, so... Uh, neural networks or deep learning scales as long as the or the the data is in such an amount that the uh, the things you want to discover are there as a signal but if the the variance in the 
this auditory modality is so high that the model thinks all the time it's noise, it will just ignore the modality. And you pretend you have a multimodal model and look, it takes both inputs and does things with them and you see even attention maps be, uh, between them. But actually, you know, it's not uh, doing as much because it's um, the loss function is more easily minimized if you just look at one modality and you have this unimodal collapse. <laughs> you, you think you're multimodal, but you're not. And it's actually super hard to, to integrate modalities because they have the representations of different variants and, and different uh, dimensionality. And I think that you had, yeah, you had Jan Bekun on your podcast and he was saying about how, how he dreams about going to video. And I'm like, wow, we, uh, we didn't have, uh, we didn't solve the image thing uh, already, <laughs> but let's, uh, yeah, let's go into video and let's make their mark. But we will have, we will spend years of making video, uh, I'm integrating video with um, text robust to, I mean, to, to really make them on the same level and not just think we solved it multimodally, but actually yeah. solved it multimodally. Because you're talking a lot there about some of the stuff that Walid Sabah talks about, which is that, I mean, he doesn't believe mm -hmm. it's possible to, to do statistical learning because, you know, mm -hmm. um, you need to have logical uh, type constraints. Uh, ra rather than just looking at co-occurrences. And I think some of the stuff you were talking about is the problem with the shortcut rule in, in deep learning as well. But um, I, I wanted to touch on a, a few things there because we've been speaking about Noam Chomsky and uh, Chomsky introduced three things to linguistics, I'm told. Firstly, that language has biological underpinnings, a bit like the visual system. He thinks that there's a kind of language module in, in the brain. Um, Hawkins completely disagrees, of course. And um, he vehemently railed against this statistical learnability of language uh, with his famous poverty of stimulus argument. And this is why I wanted to loop it into this part of the conversation, because um, Walid Sabra also argued that there's just this infinite set of language, right? And he, he just completely disagrees that it could be learned empirically at all. Um, well, yeah, what do you mm -hmm. think? But that's exactly the arguments I'd use uh, to say that it's actually only statistically uh, capturable because what I, and that's what I argue with my students because they're linguists, uh, computational linguists. And I, I was asking them um, how else to do it if not statistically, because if, um, and I, perhaps there are persons who know better, but that's just my opinion that, uh, I, okay, uh, I, I would expect, so um, a theory, so I would expect from linguistics the theory that explains one language completely and, and possibly not um, not an artificial language, but the language that people use and people uh, use during uh, when they talk. Um, and I don't think that's possible because language is extremely uh, changing. And uh, I mean... Language, we think that it is what we learn at school. There's these rules and so on. Yes, but this is just a snapshot of the moment we are learning it. But then in the next year, there is, uh, I call it the language police. So I, I don't know if that's uh, the case in every, for every language or in every, in every country. But in Romania, there is a called academia. So uh, there's a language police so there's a there's a set of people deciding when to update grammar rules and when to update pronunciation rules and and writing rules and so on and when they decide let's update then the dictionaries get updated and then the standard of the language gets updated but that and that's an update that happens every few years but uh, 
that's one update that happens. But then there's the update that happens all the time. If I start to use with my friend always the word uh, pizza for saying coffee, then pizza will be <laughs> a replacement for coffee. And if we understand each other when we're doing that, that will be it. And and if the community enlarges and this happens, uh, which uses words in a certain way, uh, it doesn't even matter what rules were and uh, what what the theory says, as long as we understand each other, some things will be picked on and, and used like that. And uh, if I see a theory that is so, um, um, you know, uh, it's so elastic that it can capture all of these things and, and uh, change as fast as, as the language itself, then I would say, yes, there are rules, there are symbols, there are things we can model one language or all languages with, and we can use theories or, or symbolic or only symbolic representations to, to you know, mm -hmm. solve the problem. But because I think that it's all about statistics that you have to update all the time, so you have to have a continuously trained model on, on language, because if you train GPT-3 today, it's already yesterday. It's, <laughs> you capture, I mean, it's, it doesn't follow every uh, new signal. And yeah, I think statistically, by continuously up, updating your statistics, you can capture such a heterogeneous and eclectic mess, which I think it's language. And I have, I think I have um, upset every linguist. I <laughs> That's think, my opinion. I, I don't know that, that you've upset them, but if, but if I put my uh, linguist, you know, devil's advocate hat on, not that I'm a linguist, but um, if I put that hat on, I think the objection is all, all the things that you just brought up, you know, let's say they're true, but they're actually a distraction really from the core issue here. Because even if I just made, you know, I waved a magic wand and caused everyone in the world to speak, you know, a single unified natural language that never changes. Okay. I would still have the problem that, and even if it was context-free, you know, suppose I just give you a context-free grammar, right? Those simple production rules can generate this vast combinatorial space of, you know, possible sentences. And if you try to go backwards, like you try to go backwards from lots of examples of sentences to rediscover what that underlying mm -hmm. context-free grammar is, the problem from a statistical point of view is you would have to have a yeah. massive coverage the of curses. the space in order to, yeah. to reverse engineer those rules. So that's the fundamental kind of problem here. It's not so much about infinities. It's just more that in order to cover the space sufficiently to infer those rules, you know, to go from the extension of the language to the intention of the language, that's the problem. Not all this changing, you know, whatever else. And I accept that in a sense, you brought up the curse of dimensionality up. And I think that is a problem, but we have seen deep learning all the time, trying to tackle it and in more and more successful ways. And I think, um, Maybe it's not it's not that impossible, and I don't say that statistical methods would solve the problem. It would again need updates and again learning and again more data to capture things that were not initially in distribution. I always say that um, I mean there's this uh, generalization question and the question of going out of distribution. I don't believe in it. I think that uh, everything the model can do is what's in distribution, what it's out of distribution and it can do, it can do by chance because sometimes decision boundaries just happen to fit 
but if we, I mean, why larger and larger training data and larger models help is that everything that you think is out of distribution is actually in distribution, especially combined with us humans that, I mean, who knows what the pile, as the, da the data set, the pile has all in it. We don't know. And then we tested with an example and are impressed, like, how that that works. And that's out of distribution that was not seen as uh, during training. I think that that was a little more in distribution than we we humans think. Uh, but now getting back to, to the um, question of... Um, linguistics of capturing that language that you have just made with your magic wand super nice and uh, and you said the problem would be just a combinatorial uh, complexity uh, then i agree to with you that then in that case uh, um, just going all symbolic that might actually do the trick but i don't believe i, I think that the magic wand uh, there is absolutely far from reality just because language is something very human and the thing is that it will change and it will have strange things in it i, th I think it's more regular than people give it credit for i mean otherwise deep mm -hmm. learning wouldn't work at all it might be a little bit like you know on, on a fractal pattern like if you look at the mandelbrot set there are areas of regularity because you could say as Wally does that language is this countably infinite set but actually, if you look at colloquial language, which is used by most of us, it, 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 it's not. It probably is, is much more manageable, maybe somewhat amenable to mem memorization. But to what you were saying um, a few minutes ago about just the complexity of a nuance of language, Chomsky doesn't only say that language has a biological underpinnings. You know, he says that um, the innateness and universality of language across cultures and, and different parts of, of, of the world, it's something which is completely built into us. And that flies in the face of this notion of language being an epiphenomenon or being an emergent mm. phenomenon. But I wondered whether you thought both could be true, because you know when we uh, think, sometimes we perform reasoning and calculations in our head and sometimes we memorize things. And it might be possible for both of those things to be true at the same time. And I wanted to make one other comment as well. So um, you said about the, the, the flux of language, and we're seeing that now on social media. So in Russia right mm -hmm. now, um, going for a walk means going for a protest. And on, on Instagram, spicy means sexy content. So <laughs> it, it, it's just incredibly how quickly language can evolve. Exactly. And as I said, I think in the beginning, it's, it's good to have both of these hills. So now I would, I, I'm just, I just defended the opinion with which I would go if I would want to progress something in the next few years, because I don't actually see progress from symbolists. I, I honestly, it's just perhaps it's a media coverage or it's just that it seems like statistics is the way to go for now until we have something better. But I believe that we should really also look in, into other directions and see what what could maybe work better. But yes, it, it could be a combination of both things. And, and that's what people usually also say. So there's these people who say we, sh we need a, nah, a morph to, between the two paradigms because some things you can capture with rules, but to have a meta thing that, that works on, on all of this, it's, it's a way to go. But for me, it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's n nice to think about these, these, uh, these things and to talk about oh. these things. It's just, um, this disappointing how much you can actually do from the PhD perspective. I think so, that's a great supervisor talk, 
like to to have a batch of PhD students work on, on these things. But then when you ask yourselves, like, how can I introduce memory into my neural network? I'd like to push back on, on something, which is um, you said you don't see much progress from symbolists. I think the correct way mm -hmm. to say that is you don't see much progress in symbolists teaching machines how to do symbols, right? Or symbolics, yeah. because the fact is human beings are symbolic. And so every single paper that's written, every single neural network that's designed, every mathematics formula that's created, yeah. every piece of software that's written is all symbolics. Like it's all written mm -hmm. in symbolics. That is the progress of symbolics. Like the fact is when we yeah. look around, right. all human progress, almost all human progress is largely driven by symbolic thought and symbolic reasoning, which is why, you mm -hmm. know, we so desperately want to teach machines how to do symbolic reasoning. So I think it's correct to say that we've had a lot of trouble teaching machines how to do symbolic reasoning. Mm -hmm. I think it's totally incorrect to say there's no progress by symbolists. Like virtually the world runs on symbolics. You're right. Yeah. But I'm always, that's a question I am actually encountering, especially when I'm thinking about multimodalities. What is the language or the way, the proper way of thinking for machines? And are we actually... Uh, demanding the right thing from machines to think like us. Uh, and again, it's a, uh, not a, not that I can decide on the hill I want to die on. I just think I'm, uh, it's a little unfair to, to request from machines to do everything as we do. Yes, I think machines are here. I mean, we program them because we want to, them to improve our life quality in some sense. But, and so the output should be understandable by us, the output should help us. So it should be us driven, right? But the internal mechanisms of how that machine achieves this desirable output for us, it's, I mean, it could be either way. And, and uh, when I was asking myself, what is even what multimodality is, I came across a lot of uh, human centered definitions that were like, I mean, we see, we hear, we taste, we touch, so machines should do the same. But <laughs> it's like, uh, even when I'm considering just seeing from, and I'm expecting seeing from machines, uh, seeing is all about capturing photons with a detector. And here we have a detector. Machines could have a better detector that don't capture only well, a certain range of photon energy, but more, like <laughs> every range of photon energy. And that would be a machine that sees, but again, how can we, or should we expect a human-like processing of X-ray plus infrared plus microwave plus radio and so on um, data? Should we or should we not? And I'm not decided. I'm just <laughs> saying that let's not uh, throw in the, uh, the human uh, measurement and apply it uh, on machines because sometimes we could limit their their superhumanness. And I'm not saying that they will talk over the world, but it's just yeah. that they will do things that we cannot do. No, I, I think you're for us. Uh, there are people who make that argument. Okay, and and for example, we recently spoke to uh, Pei Wang, and he, um, you know, he's got a nice formalism that that draws these distinction between what type of similarity to human, you know, thought are you looking for? Are you looking for similarity of behavior, similarity of structure, similarity of capability, function, et cetera. But I think where I'm coming from and more is from a practical, practical kind of point of view, which is if I'm trying to 
create machine intelligence or machine general intelligence, for example, um, if we, if we all agree that human beings are generally intelligent, you know, I was positive that that's the case. It's the only extant example of a system that is yeah. generally intelligent. And so we try to take, you know, inspiration from it. And in the case of even neural mm -hmm. networks, they were directly inspired by the lowest level sort of, uh, functional structure inside the brain, which is neurons. Um, but it throws away so much other inspiration that we can gain from from the structure of the brain if you're starting at that low end. And then of course we all know, or we all have firsthand experience with how we think, how we simulate the world in our minds, how we game situations, how we think about objects and, and the world around us. And so I, I think all I'm saying is that it's very useful or could be very useful to draw, to continue to draw inspiration and not just stop exactly. with, with yeah. an abstracted neuron. Like that's not the end mm. of the inspiration we can Absolutely. get. Yeah, so I, I mean, my if I would have infinite money to do research, like infinite money, like what would I put people on? I think I would invest it in biology or in uh, neuroscience to, to just interesting understand us. Because if I think we could be understood, like uh, the late the uh, last mechanism that uh, that builds us, that would be something really cool. Because then we could just uh, re-implement it, right? Okay, somehow, and that would be a ne the next infinite amount of money I would invest to start to recreate what we know all about us. But because we are not yet there, I'm not at all there to understand what's going on in here. And I don't think here is everything. It's like this thing that so like everything we have to understand. Uh, we we're not there. So I think. Perhaps this is so complex that we, until we understand this thing to maybe re-implement it, we should keep all our options open and, and go with abstractions. And because abstractions have helped us a lot. I mean, in, uh, physics is in a sense uh, a way of approximating every horse by a circle and it works really well <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it depends how, how far you want to get, but uh, to build really useful products for people to to use AI products, I think statistics is fine. Uh, it's uh, and we should explore how to do that well and and to build AGI. Maybe we should keep our options open. I know. So much of this comes down to whether you think intelligence is a parlor trick. You know, like we we <laughs> we. Uh, we love taking the piss mm -hmm. out of GPT-3, don't we? But, you know, we say that it's a parlor trick of intelligence and, you know, the mm -hmm. statistical approach is basically interpolating statistically between things. And that works really well if, if you're inside the distribution of things, but it, it doesn't work very well when you're outside of the distribution of things. Mm -hmm. And and then maybe human intelligence is a similar parlor trick, right? I mean, we, we were talking with a, a guy earlier <clears throat> about cellular automata. And it's just remarkably, you know, like the game of life, Conway's game of life, just with some simple rules, you can create this yep. emergent lifelike behavior. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that's just incredible. And, you know, it's entirely possible that human behavior is, is just a similar parlor trick in, in a sense. And that's the reason I would invest that infinite money into biology and understanding ourselves, because I want to understand if, if this is just a power, what is it all about? And all these expectations about AI would be even more realistic because we would see what this uh, uh, example of X, uh, like super good example of um, intelligence is all about, because we argue all the time, is this intelligent? Is this not intelligent? And we move the goalpost about intelligence all the time. 
So yeah, that that's why I, I would be. It's not something that like I would. Uh, that's interesting. It's not something that I would like to do research in because uh, I feel it's. Um, yeah, I, it's not something I, I would act like personally do research in, but I would give that infinite money to to understand this parlor trick, or maybe it isn't, because then we would know, right? We would have one investigated one way of creating intelligence. We could think about maybe if there's other intelligences, because we would know what this intelligence is all about. Fascinating. Well, um, Letizia. How do you, uh, I mean, you've got an incredibly mature process now for creating content, for doing research, for structuring things. I'm just really interested to know what that process looks like and how has it kind of matured over time? Yeah, it has matured over time. Every time I look at one of my first videos, I have to cringe. <laughs> but, you know, it, it still gets some clicks, so I don't uh, delete those videos. Didn't we delete our first uh, yeah. videos? No, I'm only kidding. They're still there. Some of them. <laughs> Yours were good from the very beginning. That's that's great. On the on the other on the other channel. <laughs> yeah, but you yeah. also have upped your game. I know. Yeah, it's uh, so people ask me this, like, how do I do the videos? And um, I wish it. I'm I'm a perfectionist, and what I've learned through the YouTube channel is actually to leave this perfectionism a little bit aside. Because if I am perfectionist until the end, I will never release Did you hear something that, Tim? because I always have to. Sorry? Leave the perfectionism behind, Tim. Did you hear that? Yeah, the curse of perfectionism <laughs> is is a real problem. Yeah, yeah. exactly, because it, it, you end up doing spending too much time to optimize for that latest 20% of quality, which is, I believe in overfitting of content. You can overfit content. It, you think it's good and Tim think it, thinks it's good, but Keith then thinks it's, ah, oh, crap, I, he should, we should have invested more time on that and that. It's like, uh, and... To, to cover a broad audience, you I don't think you need that last 20%. 80% is just fine. And I had to learn that because otherwise I wouldn't have released my first video. And, and now it's cringe. So that's the, the, <laughs> the outcome out of it. But uh, I, I've, I always think I should improve for the next video. If I did something wrong right now, it's okay. Next video. And um, yeah, what I do is I actually read the paper and then try to explain it in a... Um, script. I write a script. Uh, I could talk, you know, uh, freely, like, for example, Yannick doesn't. I think that should be, it is a very good way of learning, uh, like how to present something and so on. But I, I am a perfectionist. I cannot leave that script be. And I write it and I, I you know, I try to write it like it's written in a spoken language. It's uh, not the sound formal. And then I go on to PowerPoint and people are like, what, you're using PowerPoint for animating? But yes, the thing is that, uh, you know, this morph functionality uh, to trans make a transition between slides, you have something which is outside of you and then you have the next slide where something is inside of you and then you click morph and then it does this and you do that's your keyframe key here up and here down. And then I record it and cut it and uh, enter Miss Coffee Bean during editing. And that was yeah. the whole parlor trick. <laughs> that is fascinating. <laughs> I mean, you said some really interesting things. I mean, first of all, uh, I actually agree with you that, that con you know, content is king and the script is king. And what interests me personally is, is um, just how I present information. And you're very, very similar to me. And I, I know Yannick is quite different in the sense that it's all off the cuff. Although I think it's off the cuff less than you think. I think the parlor <laughs> trick of Yannick is that there's more, more going on behind the scenes than you realize. But, um, but no, the other thing you said, which is very interesting is that, um, 
there's 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 an exploration versus exploitation trade-off. I, I notice as I've got a team of engineers working for me at, at work, and we always have this thing that you know, should we do more analysis now, or should we just start coding? And every mm. time we start coding, we're creating technical debt. And actually, the only valuable commodity that we're getting out of any work is information. And there's always this notion that you know you could you could overfit on a video, or actually, if you just put it out there, you'll gain valuable information, and then that information yeah. will make a better video next time. So it just feels exactly. like this continuous cycle. Yeah, and that's well, uh, so. Uh, that's what I would say to anybody who wants to start. They say, "I'm not good enough." Yes, for the first video, uh, nobody will watch you, and nobody will watch you for two reasons. First, you don't have any followers or subscribers and YouTube won't push you. So even if your vid first video is like the greatest video of all time, it will get 50 clicks, not nothing from your family and friends. <laughs> But uh, then if you start, if you have something out there, uh, there people, uh, I mean, clicks can accumulate. And then for the second video, it will stash. And then again, and you will have this curve of um, growing and growing uh, followers and If your first video is crap, your second video is good, and your first, third video is even better, then you increase quality in the same pace as views are increasing. And this first video doesn't matter so much. And I think uh, so the, the community is full of people who are super smart. I mean, I see that in my comments all the time. They're so smart and uh, have, I mean, they could do it better than me. They just don't do it. And because I know they're afraid of starting and they say don't they don't have time, but I think it's it's really worth it. And there's not much diversity in terms of machine learning content or YouTubers you can watch and just come and, and do it yourself. If you think if I, I get these requests, hey, Letitia, make a video about that and that. No, do it yourself. You will read a paper, you will understand it. And I mean, what is a better way of understanding a paper than explaining it to somebody else? Nothing. So So just do it. Yeah, and this is so. This has come up quite often, actually. This this idea, you know, this kind of agile loop, right, where you're supposed to observe, decide, act quickly, and and just keep cycling around. And it's even the scientific method, right? We're supposed to observe, hypothesize, test, and then keep repeating that. Exactly. You know, a friend mm -hmm. of mine in, in school said, um, if it if it worked, if research worked the first time, it would just be called searching, right? And, and that's <laughs> exactly. the idea. We have to keep repeating. So. The agile cycle and looping, I think, is by far, you know, the most effective well, path forward for almost any any activity. I can push back a little bit on on that though. Um, <laughs> you know, that that there's still the curse of empiricism, and there's still the curse of overfitting on the information that you're getting back. Uh, you know, Keith and I had this discussion the other day. I think there was a Veritasium video about you know not overfitting your YouTube metrics, and also when you get a community, I agree with you, Leticia. I mean, we just launched a Discord community. And it is insane. The buzz, the diversity, the pointers. There are so many um, just just bits of work and people that I had no idea about. And we're being pointed in that direction. But by the same token, we're also overfitting and, and becoming typecast by, I mean, if we ask our community now, what kind of content should we produce? They'll say, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it's really difficult. It's a very difficult problem. And I don't say it's easy. It's just uh, sometimes it's, And that's why, because it's so hard and the signals are sometimes not clear or even uh, pushing you into different directions, just do what you love. That, that's, I think, the most important thing, because if, let's suppose my audience requests me a video about a paper I would hate, like, why would I do that? Just because I would get a million clicks? Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm into it because I have fun out of it and it 
Uh, I mean, perhaps that's my, my reason. I do it as a hobby. I don't do it as a, as a job. And as long as it is a hobby, I would, I will do whatever I like to do and not push myself to do things just for clicks or for money. And I, I think that most people who would start to create machine learning content would feel, would relate to this because I don't think that would be their full-time job, especially not f from the very first start. <laughs> no, I, I was just going to say, I wasn't advocating for overfitting. I'm just saying that quicker cycles. Quicker, smaller cycles are, are better than, than very long, detailed, planned, indeed overfit, you know, cycles. The idea is to, is yeah. to really go for that, that agility. It's kind of the worse is better model and what Letizia said earlier, worry about the 80%. Don't obsess about the 20%, just release, repeat, you know. Yeah, exactly. The way I like to articulate this is, you know, life is fundamentally about a missing information problem. Uh, we talk about it in our deep learning models. God, if only we could fill in the missing information, but it's the same thing in, in our life. And we want to elicit that missing information and the actions that we take to elicit that information. We, we, we don't want it to cost too much, whether it's technical debt or doing things that we don't want to do. Um, but it's a bit more complicated than that because we can, um, you know, let's say we've got a diverse sampling strategy and we get a load of, um, we get a load of information, but those are the small arrows. And actually we also need to elicit the big arrows. And the big arrows are an emergent property of the system, right? So my engineers say to me all the time, where's the big arrow, right? What are we doing? And, and actually the more abstract and emergent the big arrow is, the harder it is to quantify it, right? So I say, oh, we're building an engineering culture or we're doing this and we're doing that. No, I don't believe you, you know, quantify it for me. Right. Yeah, so it, I think yeah. the bigger arrow is something you want to capture when this is a job and where you really, I mean, where your money or outcome depends on how well you have captured the uncertainty of the problem. And what I'm actually advocating for, especially when it's, it comes to creating content, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's like in life <laughs> where it's a lot about missing information and uncertainty. Just uh, relax and, and and it's a hard thing for me to do, like really hard because I'm a perfectionist, but I'm, I'm telling myself just relax and do something, see the outcome, rinse and repeat, because if I am investing in capturing that big vector, I will have spent so much time and so much uncomfortable time, this, this time of planning and, and what should I do? It's not the time I have actually fun with, which is drawing a new Miss Coffee Bean stance, which is like, yeah, I want to do her with hearts in her eyes today. That's fun. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it's a hard balance, exactly like in life, because you want to to get a good outcome, but you also want to enjoy yourself. I think that's for me the most important thing, because I, otherwise I would quit if it would, wouldn't be any fun. So yeah, I think you are you're more grown up, you, uh, uh, Tim, because you're like the work. <laughs> I want to feel the work. Not, not really. I mean, we're, we're talking a lot with Kenneth Stanley and I'm reading a book called The Tyranny of Metrics at the moment. And uh, a big part mm -hmm. of that is about embracing subjectivity and, and, mm -hmm. and embracing diversity. And, and as you just said, you know, like the, your approach to your channel, it's very subjective and it's very interesting to you. And um, it would not be a good idea to try and quantify or over quantify what you're doing. You, you, you just believe it will lead somewhere interesting. It depends. I mean, I could go into yeah. a local minimum as well. I mean, it could happen. It's just that if it happens, I think, well, okay, bye. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> it would be, it would more likely happen because that, that's the thing. As soon as you, you, you um, objectify something, 
then you block yourself from discovering the actual thing you mm-hmm. should be doing, or or even um, from from an understanding point of view. If you if you delude yourself that you understand what you're doing, then that will block you from the deeper understanding that would have come later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're also all as a as almost a civilization. You know, we suffer from this um, this selection bias, right? Because we only see the things that survived and that were. Mm-hmm that were successful by and large, we don't see all the 10 X more kind of failed attempts. Right. And so we get this false perception that, oh, well, Hey, obviously you can plan and be successful because everything I look at is successful. You know, no, it's just, you only happen to see the things that were, that were successful, but a lot of it is really serendipity. And so it's almost a futile attempt, you know, to try and plan too much for success. And, and Tim, this is kind of where the, I don't know that it's so much deception as it's more just inevitability that, that failure is kind of more likely than, than mm. success. And so it's best just to pursue what you're passionate about. And then you have enough energy to keep moving around and moving forward until you do find success. Exactly, because on YouTube where it's all about uh, you in front of a computer and comments, so not really people who or, you know, <laughs> give uh, feedback like your family would do or like uh, colleagues would do at work. It's, uh, you can become your worst um, policeman or how should I say, you could ruin your fun yourself by taking it too seriously, by looking at the metric and saying, oh, today I had 20 less subscribers than yesterday. What happened? And, and you know, try to interpret it too much and uh, even... I think even the worst comments on YouTube can hurt you less than you can hurt yourself by by taking it too seriously and not being content with how it's going and looking at oh, others yeah. and saying, oh, they have so many more subscribers than I do. It's yeah, it's all. And that's what YouTube teaches me to relax a bit. <laughs> I'm lucky in one respect there, which is the worst comments I find more. You know, I wouldn't say amusing, but look, I'm open to any kind of criticism. And so when come, somebody comes across, you know, we get them. They're just like angry and, and just cursing us to out. Find it. You know, telling Do us you to have find it. telling us to like Where's... almost drop dead and things like that. And I, when I see those, I just think like, whoa, what's up? What's up with this person? Are you okay? You know, I mean, let's, <laughs> let's, I, I wish I had the time, but if I did have the time, I'm happy to talk about this. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't want you to I'm think I'm to... your, your mortal enemy out there, you know, on, oh, do you have you. your favorite worst comment? Yeah, I've got it right here. Look, we've hardly, I mean, I'm, I'm actually joking about this and I'm smiling about it. Cause no, cause we, we've not really had any negativity just towards us. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean like you probably count it on, on one hand. There, yeah, I think yeah. there are only two cases is where I've had to block someone from commenting on the channel. And then, I mean, this is it here. I probably shouldn't read it out loud, but can you please shut your blowhole for a while? You can't <laughs> France the same old shit. I, sh- I shouldn't swear. Uh, stop it. It's disgusting. Uh, anyway, you know, yeah, lots of, lots of bad yeah, words. Okay, in that's, yeah, that's so um, I blocked that person. But and other mm-hmm. than that, it, it's, it's all been overwhelmingly positive, actually. Yeah. And, and yeah, even a person like actually, that, like, you know, if it was possible, I would, I wouldn't, I would love to talk to them and just, just figure out, look, Hey, I'm, I'm open to criticism. Like early on, some guy was really trashing me and, you know, one of our early videos and I'm like, cool. Like, tell me, tell me more. I don't want to be annoying to you. I don't want to be, you know, some jerk on here. Like, let me know. But you know, right? it's not even your problem because it's his problem. He should just yeah. not watch the video. <laughs> I think that's uh, the power is in their hands. 
it's about the positivity, I could say. So to encourage people even more to just do videos about machine learning and so on, I had, uh, you know, not the perfect time during my PhD now uh, during Corona times where, you know, I could have gone to Punta Cana in the Dominican Republic and it was online. I could have gone to Seattle, but it was online. I could have gone to Lisbon and it was online. And it was so demotivating to publish papers and to re to get the reviews from three random reviewers who just, you know, give their opinion. And if they even would have read the paper, that would have been great, but they didn't. They just, <laughs> opinion, uh, they gave their opinion there. And really it was the, not motivating at all. And if I, uh, if I got some of, and we were doing home office, so I didn't even ha have this constant, uh, colleague, uh, so colleagues constantly in my office to, to talk to them and so on. But I had YouTube comments and really they, they were so encouraging and, and it was a piece of good mood and positivity, even in these bad times. And when I was sick with papers and I didn't want to see papers anymore because um, I expected more from mine or something. And, and, but I saw, look, it, it's great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, Letizia, thank you so much for coming on the channel. It's been an amazing conversation. Thanks for inviting me, especially. <laughs> and uh, thank you for all your, and thank you for all your support behind the scenes too. You know, it's, it's really appreciated to have you. To I have mean, you, you really uh, deserve it. Team. And I wish I would have more time to, to support you much more than I actually do. Yeah. Well, we would love wow. you to be a co-interviewer again. So we'll, um, I mean, if, if folks have any suggestions actually for a guest where we could have Letitia as a co-interviewer, um, just let us know in the comments. Yeah. Is, um, that Melanie Mitchell show was amazing. I mean, I'm so gutted actually that the, the audio quality wasn't good, but other than that, it was, it was an amazing show. And, and, uh, Letizia was a co-interviewer on that. Yeah. It was really amazing. Like, wow. I wouldn't have otherwise met any person of that caliber. <laughs> at this time i don't melanie mitchell's book I, I honestly i think it's the best it's probably the best book on ai that, that i've ever read um she, she is a huge ever. inspiration to it's me. really good yeah well, she, she is so good but um yeah i mean, I mean gary marcus's book is really good as well but yeah i'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of melanie mitchell. we need to get about Francois <laughs> like uh, yeah, but I mean, um, so Cholet's book is about deep learning, and I and I love okay. deep learning. But I mean, Melody's mm -hmm. book is about AI in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but when I read Francois Cholet's book, it's like uh, so. What I was excited about is that I, especially a book about deep learning, I have I, admittedly, I didn't read many books, but I think that's also reason that uh, I didn't. I mean, the flow of words and the and ideas in his book is incredible. I cannot stop reading. It's like a novel where something exciting happens, like what's going on, because his flow of ideas from one sentence to the next is so clear and so you cannot you cannot stop. It's like wow, yeah. I know so. Francois is really gifted. Actually, his his mm -hmm. writing acumen is just out of this world. I think that's the reason why his um, Twitter is is so popular. Because mm -hmm, he just mm -hmm. has this incredible, um, it's almost like a, an observational ability. So he just recognizes very salient things that happen and then he'll articulate them in a certain way and he'll kind of draw it all together. Um, it's, it's a real gift, actually. Mm. Awesome. Well, um, Letitia, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks you. for having me. <laughs>